I'm Colleen Cosmo-Murphy, founder of Classic Album Sundays. We tell the stories behind the albums that have changed our lives through our worldwide immersive listening events and our website, which hosts artist interview videos, playlists, and blogs about our favorite albums. This podcast features a talk with Thurston Moore, a founding member of Sonic Youth, in which we dig deep into the band's 1988 classic album, Daydream Nation. The interview is from a Classic Album Sundays event that took place at the John Peel Center at the time of the album's 30th anniversary. Once you've listened to the podcast, I encourage you to listen to the featured album following our listening guidelines. Turn off your phone, refrain from conversation, turn down the lights, turn up the volume, and then listen to the album all the way through without interruption. In this way, you can have your own classic album Sundays at home. Thank you so much for coming. I know you've had a really whirlwind, whirlwind, you know, last few months uh, oh. touring and everything. You just got back yesterday, didn't you? I got in last night to uh, London, and then I woke up this morning and came here. Um, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you're, you. You're welcome. Yeah, I came in from Latvia. I was in Latvia playing uh, a duo with Mats Gustafsson, the saxophone player. Mm-hmm. And it was like a noise guitar and noise saxophone duo in um, in Latvia. <laughs> How was it? <laughs> oh, it was really fun. It was really cool. And uh, and from the, and I from there I I, uh, I was in uh, Ghent, Belgium, and I was playing solo guitar in front of these films of Maya Deren. Uh, this, she was a filmmaker from the 1950s. A lot of did a lot of stuff in Haiti, didn't she? Yes. Yeah, she recorded a lot of music in um, Haiti with like ritual, uh, ritual dancers, and she's she wrote these great uh, books and essays about that, and did these really amazing films. She was kind of one of the earliest um, kind of American experimental filmmakers, focusing on um, the experience of feminism in 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 in, in, in art. Really wonderful work, and uh, so I was really happy to sort of do that at these film festivals. You know. Well, it's interesting because I actually saw some of her films at the Anthology of Film Archives in New York's East Village because I live there and I live there during the recording. And at I Green just Street to Studio. Rewind. Pardon? At Green Street Studio. At Green Street That's Studios, right exactly. I lived right around the corner in my first flat in New York. Um, but I wanted to rewind because it's National Album Day or National Album Weekend or. National album year, as far as I'm concerned, but that's, that's all the time. Um, what albums were you listening to at that time? Certainly, and I think we were talking about this earlier, it would have to be uh, a Public Enemies It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back uh, record, which was just completely um, uh, playing everywhere in the streets of, of New York City at that time. And that was such a, a radical, important record. Um, in New York because it really sort of galvanized all of the uh, energy that was in punk rock and new wave and no wave and hip hop in, in sort of like a really sort of unified way, um, especially with sort of bands like the Beastie Boys becoming more political at that time. And it was, um, it was just a, a, a really inspiring and intriguing record. And so that record at that time for us was really important. Yo Chuck, Once again, back is the incredible rhyme animal, the uncannable thief. Public enemy number one, five folks said freeze. And I got numb. Can I tell them that I really never had a gun? But it's the wax that the Terminator X bun. Now they got me in the cell, took my records, they sell. Cause a brother like me said, well, Farrakhan's we a doing Daydream Nation, it was around the same time that um, Public Enemy was doing their next record, Fear of a Black Planet. And, uh, Actually, when we were doing um, 
the, the next record after Daydream Nation, that's what we did with Goo, it was called, is when we were in the same studio. But that was also Green Street Studio. Green Street Studio was really interesting at that time because it used to be called, um, I believe it was, before that it was called maybe Big Apple Studios or something. It had a sort of an earlier name. And that was where Phil Glass uh, had his main uh, studio to work in. And I remember in the late 70s, there was a... Um, uh, a, a young woman that I knew who used to babysit for Phil Glass's kids, and I remember going over to get the keys to his apartment at that studio. And so, I, um, that was when I, when I started working there. I was really like, "Oh, I remember this place. This is where I got the keys to Phil Glass's apartment." <laughs> And did he do anything else in Philip Glass's apartment? Did he root around? I never know. No, she wouldn't let me go up to his apartment because, you know, which was, you know, to her credit, you know. Was, <laughs> Any other albums that you were listening to around that time that you can remember? Well, certainly my con the contemporaries of the band. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Dinosaur Jr. were making like the, some of their most critical records at that time. But bands like the, you know, the, like the, I guess, I think the Meat Puppets had made uh, Up on the Sun. Maybe around that time, you know, trying to 80, 88 is like such an incredible time. It's like when when bands like My Bloody Valentine and Jesus and the Mary Chain are, are coming up and making these just completely significant records at the time that were just um, uh, they, they just were really genuine in their creativity. They weren't they weren't really sort of playing off of anything um, other than their own sort of just like moment, and that was really um, that was really exciting and. Uh, so I would say those two bands, certainly MBV and, 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 and the Mary Chain were really big, and Dinosaur Juniors, whatever records were happening at that time with those bands. of underground uh, music coming out of the USA at that time that was um, really important to us because a lot of those bands had sort of just been working for years and years and years, you know, um, and just crisscrossing the USA and playing every little donut shop that was available to them to play in. You know, bands like Killdozer and the Jesus Lizard, you know, who started out as Scratch Acid. <clears throat> and certainly bands that were already sort of um, really kind of premier uh, touring bands at that time for people like us, like the Black Flag and Minutemen and Butthole Surfers and things like this. So it was interesting when in the 80s, first coming over to England, um, there was always this thing about like, why are these bands, these bands really kind of know how to do their thing. And, and, if we, um, and there was this sort of realization that um, that a lot of the underground bands in the USA had been doing it for a number of years before anybody really kind of took notice outside of their own communities. And a lot of the bands that we would meet here and talk to is like, well, we've only been doing this for a few weeks, you know, it's like, it's really, it's impossible for us to get gigs and sometimes we have to pay to play. It was a completely different sort of uh, situation. Um, and that was, that was really curious to me. Well, all those bands you mentioned before were bands that we played on college radio. I was on a college radio station, WNYU at the time, that uh, Daydream Nation came out. And it was surprising that you went to the aforementioned Green Street Studios because that's where Nick Sansano, who produced the album, uh, he was recording the likes of Public Enemy, Rob Bass, Ice Cube. Why did you choose Green Street? Step up for us using that studio. I think we kind of um, were sort of looking into what studios we could afford at the time, and we didn't really have any budget, and there was no uh, there was no money around to play with. Um, but w with Daydream Nation, we had gotten involved with Paul Smith, who was who had a label in, in London called Blast First, which came out of Mute, uh, Daniel Miller's uh, record label, and and uh, Paul Smith. Well, um, started 
a label called Double Vision, where he worked with Cabaret Voltaire, and he wanted to sort of um, put other music out on Double Vision. And he, uh, one of the records he did was a record with Lydia Lunch, and Lydia Lunch was a compatriot of ours. We had already recorded some music with her, and, and we were just, you know, we, we worked together. She recommended Paul Smith to check us out, and he had a couple of people um, uh, that he worked with, these two sisters, uh, Liz and Pat Naylor, who were in New York City, and they went to see us, and they wrote back and said, well, they're kind of insane. They kind of come up on stage with drills and, and, and sticking drumsticks and guitars, and they kind of fall over a lot. And that was the only information he had, which was kind of like, parts of that are true, but we were actually really playing sort of <laughs> songs as well. and. Um, so he was intrigued by that, and he tried to uh, get a hold of us, and at that time we could only use the telephone, and he would, I remember him calling uh, Kim's mother's house in Los Angeles when we were staying there, and her mother would answer the phone, and she didn't believe that somebody from England was calling us. <laughs> and so she, so was, she would sort of hang up on him. And finally we sort of uh, realized what was going on and I, got a, and I got a hold of Paul Smith. And he, so he put out Bad Moon Rising and we served and brought us over to England and, and uh, we kind of pretty much lived here for a few months um, working in and around Rough Trade. And, um, and so the... Um, Daydream Nation came out through Paul Smith coming to New York and setting up office there and wanting to do more work with uh, bands uh, from USA and he was putting out records by uh, like Big Stick, you remember them, and, and, and Steve Albini's groups, whatever he was doing. And Big Black stuff yeah, and everything yeah. else he was doing. So there was, and so between him and this other fellow at Mute who had a label called Kelvin K something, and he put out Swans, and um, there was like this kind of like uh, a lot of interest in putting out these bands that were sort of around our scene at that time, and uh, so um, I think to answer your question, um, Daydream Nation was pretty much sort of spearheaded by uh, Paul Smith, this entrepreneur from, from, from London, or originally from Nottingham. <laughs> He's a Nottingham boy. Now, it also is a much more advanced studio because when he recorded Sister, it was on 16 tracks. I believe it was all kind of analog, valve, tube equipment, and yeah. now you had 24 tracks to play with. Was there a conscious decision to have like a, a bit of a bigger sound as well? I think we always had this idea that, you know, bands like us in the 80s um, making the kind of music we were making, which we thought was um, fairly radical, you know, in comparison to what was sort of being played uh, on radio. And we always thought, like, what if a band like us made a record that sort of had the same production value as, say, somebody like Aerosmith? Like, what would that sound like? And eventually that came into play quite a bit. Um, and uh, all of a sudden it was like, it was no big deal. It's like, you know, it, it just sounds like what it sounds like. <laughs> I mean, to me, like the best sounding records are, are, are records that are just made by groups that are just completely inspired, regardless of what the technology is. I mean, you know, there's, there's four track records that just blow away, like, you know, these kind of million pound records, so. I mean, even Madonna's Into the Groove was 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 kind of an eight-track demo that they sort of used, and they just kind of goosed up. And that record will always just have this amazing kind of uh, vibe to it. But working in a 24-track studio was, it was a little, I, I think it was a little unwieldy because it was, um, 
you know, there's there was just more to contend with, and I, I don't I don't ever think we really accomplished that that sound uh, idea of like sounding like an Aerosmith record or something that that produced. You know, I never really felt like oh we actually did that. It just sounded like it was just kind of more to work with. Uh, the idea was to actually make a more expansive record. Though. I remember that was a very conscious decision to actually do a double album. that Lee Rinaldo's obviously famously a deadhead and you might have the live dead as a double album, but there weren't a lot of double albums in this kind of sphere of music that you were involved with, except for Zen Arcade, I think, was double. Yeah, I think that Grateful Dead, that was like a triple album. Well, right? triple album, well... <laughs> yeah, that was just too expansive. That was like, <laughs> that was jamming. We weren't into jamming. We were like into improvisation. Um, no, I mean, yeah, the, 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 it, was, it was more... Uh, defined by what had been going on just just um, uh, with bands like the Minutemen and Husker Du. The Minutemen did Double Knuckles on the Dime, which was kind of a response to Husker Du's Zen Arcade, and both on SST records. Um, and the label you had just yeah, and we were just yeah, and SST was a label that we were dealing with quite a bit, and. And um, the politics of that, I forget what, what, how, that, how that actually transpired, where we didn't have this record um, come out on SST. In fact, Paul Smith sort of had it come out on a more, a label that had more um, connections to uh, corporate distribution. It was a label called Enigma. Um, and I forgot what, I forgot what that whole, uh, why that, how that transition happened, um, to tell you the truth. But the, uh, the idea of making a double album at that time was was very it was a, it was a conscious thing because it was nobody was really doing that it was very few examples of it and we thought both Husker Du and the Minutemen records Minutemen's records were um, were were just were so cool. done like a triple or a quadruple album which you know uh, would have been kind of ridiculous but um, making a double album uh, was really sort of part of the plan I mean we weren't trying to do anything except for um, you know get a record out and then you know um, go on tour and you know uh, try to break even I mean we all had day jobs and nobody you know we weren't like the, the Sonic Youth wasn't supporting our, our lifestyles. We all had, you know, we had to pay rent and, you know, be able to buy peanut butter. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah. jobs did you guys do? What? What jobs? I was washing dishes uh, at a place called Food, which was sort of an artist restaurant in Soho in New York. Um, and uh, Lee was working as an assistant to a visual artist, a sculptor, I remember, uh, both Kim and I sort of would have different jobs that we would do, um, and mostly that were very temporary. I would take temporary jobs, uh, you know, being a file clerk. Uh, I would sell fruit from a fruit wagon on the street, and then I sold ice cream from an ice cream wagon on the street for, for a while. Did anyone recognize you? No, nobody. Yeah. No, <laughs> we weren't really recognizable. I mean, we were like, you know, we didn't really have much of a profile outside of just the coterie of people around like the CBGB scene or whatever. And so being recognized wasn't really, I mean, it didn't have that kind of, um, it didn't, there was no weight to the recognition. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like you, you, 
you know, you'd be made fun of for selling ice cream because I had to wear kind of an ice cream suit. <laughs> so there is a picture. Wow. There is a photograph. Wow. Um, talking about doing a double album, you would have had to spend a lot more time writing, I would assume. And was there a different approach to writing? I was watching some old interviews with you, uh, I was circa 1988, and you said the writing style was anarchistic. Anarchistic? Um, I think, I remember, you know, we would write songs um, in these kind of rehearsal studio situations in downtown New York, and those cost money as well. And the fact that we didn't really have any money, it would really sort of prohibit too much of a um, sophisticated space. <laughs> and so there would generally be basements that were um, about this, maybe half the size of this stage, and then we would just be kind of really close to each other. So we couldn't really blast or anything like that. So. Um, it was interestingly, we would write songs um, at, at a fairly sort of low volume, you know, together. And it was, and so, in a way, the 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 quote unquote experimental aspect of our of our music um, was, I always thought, was more to do with structure, with song structure. That's where we were really experimenting. Um, it's like what can be validated as a as a song, you know, um, in working with structure and like, you know, where verses can be or where choruses can be, if, they, if they're going to be at all, you know, and like where they're placed and how things can move and like what that flow is. And um, that was, I think, where we really sort of became experimental. The, the other aspects of, of, you know, how we tuned the guitars, how we strung the guitars, how we would sort of modify the guitars with different implements. That was really easy. I mean, anybody could do that, and other people were doing that. And um, we would employ that, but I never really thought of that as so much experimental, as just sort of just expanding like the aspects of the instrument. And um, it, that was just like, you know, anybody can do this. I mean, it's just like, this is super fun to do that. But the true experimentation was in the, it was in the actual writing. And I thought that's what was happening when we were playing together and, and that kind of nonverbal discussion of like how a song was, was happening. And that was really um, always the most enlightening thing for me and um, of being in a democracy like that. found the writing, uh, I remember one thing that I, I, I kept bringing more sort of um, ideas that I thought were kind of, kind of con sort of conservative in a way as far as like uh, as sort of song structure because I thought in a way for us to do anything in a conservative way was, was, was radical because <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, um, exactly because your, your following would not be expecting well, you to do that. Well yeah and also the fact that we were using sort of alternate tuned instruments and stuff and so to bring in these other sort of um, kind of more uh, kind of more basic uh, ideas of songwriting into using these instruments, I thought that was just kind of this interesting kind of um, uh, dialogue between the radical and the sort of like the non, or the, the more traditional. And um, so, but I always, re I remember doing that. I remember uh, actually one afternoon while we were writing where I, I could see maybe um, Lee kind of wanting to sort of just like tear that away and just like sticking things in his guitar and like turning on these different pedals and like, no, let's just destroy, let's create some destruction and build from that. And I was really sort of, uh, I, I remember thinking like, oh, that's really, that's really cool that he's like, he just, <laughs> like, I, like we need that in the band or something and that, that, that really connected. I don't, but as far as like the songs on this record, Daydream Nation, they came together, um, they came together very quickly. We were really fast songwriters, you know, and I, I, I don't think we really belabored too much uh, over composition. And I think we did later, you know, when we, um, 
after that record, we would get a little more, um, we would get a little, a little more heady into it, where you would spend like weeks trying to sort of figure out how to, how to make certain material work. But for that record, things really happened uh, fairly quickly. There's one song on the record um, where I remember writing the lyrics on the way to the studio, and, this, and the lyrics were written about walking to the studio. <laughs> So it's written really quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a it's a song that's in the um, it's one of the last songs. There's like this trilogy at the song at the end. There's the uh, there's a song called the Wonder, and there's um, and then there's Ex Exterminator. There's a song in the middle of it called Does anybody know? Hyperstation. I think Hyperstation is that song that I'm talking about. It was just like in the, and this, the lyrics were sort of written. There's other um, there's there's other information in there as well, but that was written about actually so like walking. And so I, I sort of name check some of the streets uh, from our apartment on the Lower East Side to Green Street Studio. amounts of not not necessarily always name checking but certainly pop cultural references within this album and also in the video for Teenage Riot and it seems that as a band you were quite you didn't really mind wearing your influences on your sleeves so much uh, could you kind of talk about some of these different references throughout Daydream Nation we I mean I think we always felt like we really um at, especially at the time of, of recording that record we felt like we were kind of um officially in sort of this lineage of of like of sort of downtown new york um uh, kind of art and music um progressive art and music and so we had all sort of um, gravitated to new york city and new york city was is, an, is interesting because there's very few people that I knew that actually were were native to the city. Most of the music that was really indigenous to New York City to, uh, for me uh, was primarily hip hop coming out of the, out of out of uh, um, the outer boroughs of Bur of Brooklyn and in, in, in South Bronx and uh, in Upper Manhattan. And I thought, uh, and and also a lot of Latino music um, was was very indigenous to New York. But as far as sort of um, music that was kind of uh, this kind of knowing sort of post no wave rock music. It was mostly made by people coming from outside of Manhattan to come into the city to be where um, the, the models for what they were interested in um, were already there. I mean, be it like Andy Warhol's factory or the Velvet Underground or um, the early Max's scene around uh, television and Patti Smith and, and all this, and people coming to be part of that. And even a lot of those people, uh, like Andy Warhol was from, from, from Pennsylvania. I mean, it was just like, so that, that whole kind of scene was always sort of um, people coming out of university or other parts of the world coming into New York to do their thing. And also um, to reinvent themselves, I think a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it was. It was so. That's in a way that defined a lot of that activity in in Manhattan, and I felt that's kind of we were we were we were sort of the same kind of thing as that. And so um, we were just kind of ravenous about our influences, you know, be it music, art, literature, and um, and we were really into sort of you know. Uh, having that influence be really um, kind of celebrated. I mean, we really wanted to celebrate it. We, ne we, ne we never felt like we were covering it or copying it, but we wanted to be, we, we really liked the communitarian aspect of it. We liked that, we liked that idea of, a, of this kind of collective of, of um, sort of challenging the, um, 
you know, these, these any kind of standard um, uh, expectation of you know who you are as an artist. So certainly, people like Allen Ginsberg and Ann Waldman, and Diane DePrima, or Amiri Baraka, uh, these kind of writers, and then you know certainly musicians like uh, you know like Lou Reed and and, and uh, Phil Glass and, and John Cage and and, and uh, Patti Smith and, and you know. Uh, Debbie Harry, you know, uh, these were all really important people to us. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, part of thieves, wild cord of my sleeve, thick. Heart of stone, my sins my own, they belong to me, me. When we made the video for um, uh, Teenage Raya, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was basically taking a, a lot of the, um, the documentation that we had of it at that time, which existed on, only on these kind of VHS, VHS tapes, these videotapes, which at that time was kind of a new thing. The idea of actually having uh, some of this history, um, like moving image history on a videotape was, was, was really exciting. Because, you know, in the 70s, you didn't really have that. I mean, you would have these memories of seeing things on the television and you could talk about it. And then all of a sudden you had these, these VHS tapes and then things started appearing on them. And then people started trading them and collecting them and saying, and so we, we were doing that. And so between all of us, we had all these clunky VHS tapes that had all these like really grainy, old, kind of warped uh, images of, uh, video images of, of, of like Sun Ra or, or, or something like that, you know, or Patti Smith, like, you know, like some kind of um, weird concert in Central Park. And we'd put them, we just took parts of all these different, uh, uh, videos and we overlaid them. We we had a we we had a, a a video of us playing that Richard Kern, the filmmaker, had made in his apartment Richard building films at the gas station. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we just started. We just like peppered that 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 video with all these images, and it's just like really you know to fit in the time of that one song. And we just did it for fun. We just went to a little video edit, video editing place um, that was near the Strand Bookstore. At the time, Lee and I did that, and we went up there and we just we did it, and then we showed it to everybody, and everybody liked it. We weren't really thinking of like, I, don't, I mean, MTV was happening at that time, but we weren't really um, thinking of anything except for just making like some <laughs> some kind of movie. But uh, yeah, I really love that video. I think that that was kind of um, it kind of really captured the aesthetic of the band more than anything at the time. And it was really cross generational, which I really liked as well. Within the album's grooves, of course, is references to William Gibson, but also people like uh, Joni Mitchell and, a, and a Eliminator Jr., Easy Top, Dinosaur <laughs> Jr., I think. So these, these kind of pop cultural references. Um, and it seemed to me in a way also, especially with Teenage Riot, that maybe you were also maybe making a statement possibly about the state of rock and roll music at that time. I'm thinking of songs like Ode to Bob Dylan by David Bowie or what Patti Smith did on Horses, where they kind of felt that, you know, where did Bob Dylan go? Where's rock and roll? Or Patti Smith kind of singing about the doors and trying to bring back this spirit of rock and roll. How did you feel about the state of rock and roll at the end of the 80s? I thought it was in, in. I thought the state of rock and roll was just like wide open. I mean, to me, it was so exciting at the time. You know, I, was, I remember doing an interview right around that time, right when we were getting into the '90s, uh, with with an interviewer who was just sort of disparaging the '80s as this kind of lost 
uh, era, and I was and I was like, uh, all contraire. I think there was ten thousand incredible records that came out in the nineteen eighties. Uh, the the rock writer Byron Coley and I were trying to compile a list of that. We were going to do a book of like the ten thousand greatest records of the nineteen eighties, which we're still working on actually. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I I thought it was I thought um, there was so much good music happening. I thought like what was happening in, in hip-hop was like becoming really, really exciting at that time. Um, so I, uh, I felt like getting into the 90s, like things were just like super interesting and exciting. And seeing young people who were starting bands that I had seen in our audiences at the time in the 80s, like um, starting bands, so like the advent of bands like Nirvana or Pavement or, uh, you know, was really, it was, was, was fascinating because they were referencing music that predated punk rock in a way that, you know, um, was something that for our, for our age uh, as a band starting in 79, 80, I mean, I was in a band in like 77 in New York and then Sonic Youth starts around 1980. But it all sort of morphs from these different um, groups of people that we were all playing with. Um, Lee had some people he was playing with, and Kim was playing with some people, and I was playing with all like in the late 70s. And so the fact that we sort of come together as a, as a the three of us primarily in 1980, is um, it, it doesn't come out of a void. We had already been doing work with the different music in the 70s in New York City. But at that time, there was a, a there was a real uh, there was a real line in the sand about any music that predated 1976. You kind of like got rid of all those recordings, and it was it was a, you know it was a real standoff of creating like a completely new um, identity defined by that moment in 1976 of, of just like punk rock and like moving forward and. In realizing that punk rock was like this really sort of liberating new force of just being completely uh, experimental in like what you were going to do, um, even though there was like this really sort of purest traditional aspect of punk rock, there was also this obviously this world of just like being able to do like whatever you want and like punk rock being whatever you wanted it to be, you know. And 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 so music predating 1976 was was um, off limits <laughs> for a long time, you know, and it wasn't until like the 80s when certain bands started referencing that and became really, uh, again, exciting to sort of reinvestigate it. When a band like Black Flag started growing its hair longer, you know, that was just a really radical move, you know, because you didn't grow your hair. Everybody had short hair. I mean, it's like, even in 70, 1976, seeing a band like Television on stage one of the most um, striking things about that band was that they had short hair. You know, Richard Hell cut all his hair off and chopped it off, and Tom Verlaine had short hair. Nobody in their right minds, and like, in, uh, usually were, at that time, were going on stage with short hair, but they did short hair and straight leg pants and like you know button-down shirts. Nineteen fifties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like this kind of uh, a nouveau vogue thing, you know. But that was it, that was such a. a, a a radical visual at that time because you know if you're going to be in a rock band you had long hair and flares and all this kind of stuff so um anyway i mean in, in the 80s when when bands when underground bands started referencing music predating 1976 it was kind of daring you know yeah. i think yeah. also making mention of someone like johnny mitchell i'm a huge johnny mitchell fan myself yeah. i thought that was quite incredible Now, I remember watching another video of yourself around circa 1988, and you had all these files on different musicians. You said, here's my file on Patti Smith. This is pre-internet. So you had to have physical, you know, there's a, you couldn't just like look something up. You had to have VHS cassettes or, or newspaper clippings. Do you consider yourself a music fan first or a musician first? Oh, um, that's a good question. I mean, I... 
I um, I think I'm a, a complete sort of fetishist <laughs> for for I I uh, I've, I mean I I really just sort of um, I, I I really like to sort of um, I think I guess I'm a, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I am. <laughs> I mean, I because I, you know, I I I I come from a family where there was always music activity. My father was a musician, and, and so I I was always playing music, you know. And but I never really sort of my ambition was to to be a writer, musician, or whatever. Just do it. I mean, so but I I was always sort of completely. Um, uh, and utterly a fanboy, yeah, for sure. And so I, I um, you know, records, books, magazines, all this kind of stuff. I really, but you know, I, I never really wanted to sort of hang out with like. Um, I mean, I wasn't like a fan where I was like, you know, waiting for autographs or this kind of thing. I didn't really, I didn't really care about that kind of connection so much. I was more interested in the work as opposed to. Um, the personality so much. I didn't really want to sort of like, you know, um, I don't know how to say so it. The cult of personality and, and all the kind yeah, of... Possibly, yeah. yeah. I was really interested in sort of like the sort of um, the documentation. I was really into the, the sort of the, the vibrational kind of tactile world of it, you know, the, and... The archival you know, world. Yeah. I mean, there was this inter great interview I, I saw with, uh, with the, the jazz composer Sun Ra where... He was to tour Egypt, and he and um, he told the e Egyptian promoter to send some fabric from Egypt to him, so he could touch it, so he would be uh, acquainted with like the world he was going to enter into. And I was like, that was really interesting in this kind of physio spiritual way. And I really always liked sort of the, um, the idea of um, the documents because I think they they have a real sort of spirit alive to them. Yeah. I think that I call it the aura of objects, and yeah. I uh, I feel the same way about playing John's Peel's record tonight. I mean, it is a we're special John, feeling. We're, we're actually John's playing version. John John Peel's own personal copy, courtesy of the John Peel Archive. So uh, that I I feel there's a special kind of presence that that lends to the the entire event. Um, Sonic Youth. Seem to me, especially from your second album onwards, to really utilize the album format as a cohesive artistic statement. And I was wondering if we could just quickly encapsulate maybe <laughs> what uh, Evil and Sister and, and even Daydream Nation, maybe what their the kind of general themes might be behind these records. We were a lot. We were sharing a lot of this kind of uh, literature of. Um, speculative fiction, you know, coming out of science fiction where uh, these ideas um, of, you know, transubstantiation, all this kind of mm. things. And, uh, there was a whole uh, genre of, of, of kind of modernist science fiction that was happening in the, in the mid-80s that we were sharing. People like Philip K. Dick was certainly the father of a lot of it, um, but there was contemporary writers like Certainly, like William Gibson and Bruce Sterling um, were really uh, influential to us. So that record, Sister, was called Sister, uh, uh, referencing the fact that um, Philip K. Dick would write a lot about his uh, loss of his twin sister at birth, you know, and which was you know something that he constantly was contemplating, you know, what what, what that was to the point where he saw it as like this this kind of uh, cosmologic thing of like the of the, of, um, the world being this kind of uh, duology of like two siblings spinning in different ways you know and uh, that and so that's where our kind of order and chaos comes from so his books sort of were you know but he would tell stories of a common man like a salesman on the uh, you know like in northern California where this kind of comes into play and like so these books were really were really a, um, you know kind of uh, intriguing reading for us and I think at the time uh, that's what Sister was was coming out of so it was really of the time so the, you know and um, you know Evol um, and Bad Moon Rising, you know, um, uh, they all sort of do have these these themes. But you know, we're we're kind of you know we're kind of young. We're kind of growing up in public, which is really kind of a, uh, 
you know, interesting thing to do. And we are never sort of wanting to sort of um, have our politics be so steeped in the uh, in current events because we always saw um, the political uh, dialogue as something that was always had this historical arc to it, you know. And um, so I, I never wanted to sort of actually have songs that kind of um, had a bit of a, a shelf life like that because you know uh, politics come and go and I wanted I thought the I thought uh, art should be sort of um, it, it, it should last forever you know and it should never be kind of I never wanted to denigrate it by sort of having the politicians be part of the music just want to ignore that if you can as much as you can it started the top now it's dialing down Words best when it's lost Digging under the ground Never mind it now We can bring it back It's total trash And it's a natural fact That I'm not no Never the same It's more than a game Can't take it away I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to just hand you a copy, uh, my copy of the record. I think there's a track listing in there. In any case, uh, what's one of your, some of your favorite songs on the album? So this was, this was uh, John's album. This one's John's. I can hand you that oh, one. that one is. Yeah, let or me see that look, one. Yeah, let's do that Let one. me see that one, yeah. Whose is this? That one's mine. <laughs> oh, oh, well, this one's good, too. I don't want to, you know. That's all right. They're both John, good. John's is nicer to touch. <laughs> oh. Yeah, this is great. So, um, and it's, see, this one has a sticker on it from Scott Peering, who was a rough trade uh, guy. And, he has, and um, his company was called Appearing. So he was promoting this record, and he sent this to John. And that's really interesting. Scott, who's no longer with us, but he um, he was the first person to actually put on a gig of Sonic Youths in London. And he was um, friendly with one of the women in a band called Ut, who were from sort of a New York, London uh, group, who were really radical and still together to some extent. And he put us on, and we played at a venue called The Venue, in London, and they closed the curtain on us while we were playing. <laughs> Was and we anybody were, there that fateful night? <laughs> we were opening up for um, Daniel Dax and SPK. Yeah, I remember Daniel Dax. I have one of her albums, actually. She was part of the Lemon Kittens and that yeah. whole scene. And SBK were an industrial noise uh, band that showed vivisection films behind them. Uh, SBK stands for Surgical Penis Clinic. And they came out of Australia. And when they first played CBGBs, they were just so, like, insane. Like, it was just, like, brutal. And so um, when we were going to play with them in London, I was, I was kind of excited that we were playing with SBK. But it was right when they, they kind of changed the thing to become a, a, a bit of a, a metal dance band. This was a whole era of wax tracks records yeah. as well, which in the French, it didn't really work out. Belgium and that kind of yeah, it cold didn't really, wave. It, it wasn't very happening, and so <laughs> so they were the headliners, and uh, we were supposed to play second and Daniel Dax first, and then um, but she refused to go on first, and so we had a bit of an argument in the so-called dressing room, and um, and so she won out because she was you know it was her town you know and uh so we said oh, okay and we had no money and we, had, we were supposed to like fly home the next morning and we didn't know what was we were just like starving and so we went out and we um started playing and then lee's guitar amp blew up like in the second song and smoke started coming out of it and um and then all of a sudden the curtain started closing because they, they, uh, obviously they had enough of us. And there was hardly anybody there at that time because it was early on in the night. But there was these two boys leaning against the stage looking up at us. And they were just laughing and going like, brilliant, brilliant. And I was like, whatever happened? These were our first fans in, like, in, in England. I always wondered what happened to these guys. 
and uh, the curtain was closing, and I was like smashing the curtain with my guitar and rubbing it up against and like trying to stop the curtain from closing and screaming in the microphone. And that was our big debut in, in England. And, and, uh, Fantastic. Fantastic. And then Scott, I, I only remember this because Scott Peering's name is on this. And then he took us to Victoria Station and we, and we slept on benches and then got on, like the train didn't run to Heathrow until like 5 a.m. or something like that. And then we, and somehow we got home. And then we came back. And how important, and, before you tell us about some of your favorite songs, how important was John Peel to your success here in the UK? Because you completely, were actually more popular here than you were in the US at that time. Well, he was completely important. He played our records. Nobody played Sonic Youth records at all, anywhere. I mean, um, I think Rodney Bingenheimer played uh, one of our seven inches, the first seven inch we did of Death Valley 69, um, and he played it at the wrong speed. I always remember. But, uh, he was a legendary Los Angeles radio DJ. No, but John, John played our records, and that was really important to us. And, uh, you know, for me, that was, you know, in the, in the 80s, uh, we could only hear John Peel through cassettes that were brought over from England from people who would record their radio shows. And a friend of mine who I mentioned earlier, Byron Coley, had some of these cassettes. And so we would duplicate these cassettes and we would listen to this radio show, which was really curious because every once in a while he would play like a collection of like football songs, you know? And uh, I didn't know what that was. As I was like, what, like for us, we didn't know what we didn't know what football was. We knew what America. It's not a religion yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, I think that's, that's so, um, so I, I didn't, you know, you would hear like, you know, you hear the fall on the buscocks, and you would hear sort of a Liverpool football song. It's like, well, maybe that's punk rock too. <laughs> like, we got to we got to know more about that. Um, I was actually, uh, I had the I had the honor and liberty to, to uh, actually look through some of um, John Peel's record collection, and he had. Sonic Youth 7 inches and he had that first um, Death Valley 69 7 inch the very one of the first thing we one of the first things we did and I was really happy to see that in that collection because it's so rarefied and I was really just happy to see that and then I saw a second one right next to it I was like we well, got two of these I only I don't have two of those um Quick, <laughs> Uh, favorite songs? I mean, Teenage Riot is like, you know, to me, that song was like really, you know, that song was inspired by uh, when we first started um, becoming aware of, of uh, Dinosaur Jr., who were just called Dinosaur before the Jr. And, um, and, and Jay Maskus was, was, really, was really a curious uh, musician to us because he was such a remarkable guitar player and songwriter and singer. And, and so, um, we, we befriended him pretty early on and we would take his, his band out on tour with us. And I remember visiting uh, his, his family's house in Amherst, Massachusetts and going into his, his bedroom. But you couldn't really go into his bedroom because it was completely and utterly like destroyed. It was like records and books and magazines and like leftover <laughs> pizza boxes and Everywhere, strewn everywhere. The, you know, the bed was upside down. I mean, it was just completely like it was. It's just wonderful, and, and he uh, and I just thought of it as like this. It was like it was like a teenage riot. Like there was this riot, and he was the most calm, kind of centered person in his own way. It was like, uh, and I, I sort of thought like his. The, the the beauty that he was e evoking was like was really political in a way because he was like he there was no articulation um, besides that and that was like this true art and I thought that was like really sort of like that was kind of like 
the new the new youth sound, the new sound of the youth that I thought was really important, like making this kind of intelligent music, you know, it, and it had this kind of um, really genuine intellect to it. And that's where, where Teenage Riot comes from. And the way that song starts with that really, um, that really sort of minor guitar thing, I always remember sort of just kind of fooling around with that and Lee pointing at it and going like, what's that? And like, and so kind of sticking that on at the beginning of that song and then Kim does that recitation on top of that song that she wrote. And then, you know, and I always, and then the lyrics that I wrote for that song, I always remember kind of really working on them, being inspired by that, that time and that moment. And then playing that song for the first time at a place called Maxwell's, which was a club Hoboken. In, in Hoboken, yeah. New Jersey. And having the song, having the lyrics written down in a notebook and sitting there with the group, the four of us, uh, um, having some food and just Steve's going like, can I see the lyrics that you just wrote for this song? And it was called Teenage Riot. And then everybody sort of being excited that we were doing this, 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 this new thing and feeling that there was something happening. Because it was just then that people started actually kind of taking us seriously a little bit because they I think you know bands just don't last very long and so I thought there was this idea that maybe we, we were going to go the way of most bands which is like just it's over but at this point we kind of we were kind of um, we knew that things were becoming a little more sort of pronounced and I could feel it with the people coming to see us like oh, um, you're taking us a, with a little more credibility maybe so um, I would certainly say that song Silver Rocket to me is probably uh, um, probably my favorite song on the record. Why is that? Because um, it kind of really sort of uh, exemplified what I really wanted to do in a band, which is just create like this kind of really hyper sonic guitar music, you know, that was sort of informed by the name Sonic Youth, which is, I came up with that name just because I wanted it to be this... Um, music that referenced kind of high energy, kind of working class rock and roll like MC5, like the Motor City 5, MC5, the Stooges. And the youth the youth name came more from reggae music. It came from like big youth and, and the idea that reggae music always talked about like having to protect and, and honor youth culture and, 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 and educate it in the right way. And that was a very sort of, the music was so spirit-minded. It was such a spiritual music, uh, uh, reggae music and dub reggae. And so youth was all about that because it, it was before hardcore, like, you know, punk rock hardcore was all these bands like Reagan Youth and Youth Youth. It was mostly, it was, it was about reggae. It was about, like, the youth. Mm -hmm. And so Sonic Youth was those two things together. It was like this, um, that, and so Silver Rocket to me was kind of, a, in a way, really um, this song that I think we would we would kind of replicate over and over again where it had this kind of first chorus and then like noise breakdown and then verse chorus and then we're out of there <laughs> and so we created a bit that's sort of like that that was sort of the beginning of that template was right there um, the sprawl uh, which was like a really sprawling song I remember writing that um, in um, a uh, a trailer uh, in in Northern California um, uh, in a in a fishing village that um, that Kim's family used to sort of uh, spend the summers in and stay in this trailer and I had a guitar with me and just writing that music uh, just the music of it but all these songs the song "Cross the Breeze" is is um, uh, such an intense song that um, I was really uh, knocked out that only a few years ago maybe about six or seven years ago I got a letter from some guy who was like in a really 
super underground black metal group and he, he was telling me that you do realize that Cross the Breeze is like the, the song that a lot of black metal bands sort of reference as like one of the few non-black metal bands uh, music that is pertinent to the uh, sound of black metal and um, I, didn't, I, I couldn't tell if it was if he was pulling my leg or not <laughs> but I realized that it made a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, so. No, I don't have it. I mean, favorite song, I would say maybe Silver Rocket. Um, uh, I would say that whole first side of that record is uh, up until Cross the Breeze. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. What's your favorite song? <laughs> I have to say Teenage Riot. I just absolutely love, I mean, I just absolutely oh, love that song. But it's, it might be a bit uncomfortable to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyways. And the sense is 30 years later, and you look back, and it's sometimes it's, you can almost gain a better understanding of where your album sits in the cultural sphere. Do you feel that in some ways Daydream Nation was kind of the breakthrough album that kind of gave an outsider's perspective to a wider group of people and it was just about to break into mainstream America. Uh, possibly just because the fact that Paul Smith with Blast First and really sort of pro promoting this record through Mute, uh, bringing it to a company in the USA that sort of kind of had a wider distribution than say SST was sort of stuck in at that time. Um, he was very instrumental in this record, uh, you know, being promoted further than any of our records were promoted. I think it was also at a time where people were really, um, anybody who sort of had any kind of m marginal or sort of uh, peripheral uh, curiosity about our band um, would be, a, came to this record. And critically, it was in, in, in New York City, which was our hometown, uh, there was the newspaper The Village Voice, which was fairly internationally known um, as, a, as, a, as a cultural uh, hip newspaper. Um, they had this annual Paz and Jop poll, they called it, which is a play on the word jazz and pop. And, uh, and that was spearheaded by the, the rock writer Robert Criscow, and it was a, uh, it was a, um, uh, a voting by all, the, all these rock critics from all over uh, their favorite records of the year. And so I don't think we ever really figured in the Pazden Job poll previously. I mean, possibly very low on the, on the poll. Um, but that, the, this year, um, the number one record was It Takes a Nation of Millions by Public Enemy, and the number two record was Daydream Nation. And that was really big for us. I mean, and I didn't really expect that. And I remember seeing that and thinking like, oh, this is the ultimate so it was like one of these things of like, you know, what can be the ultimate? You know, the ultimate would be like, you know, having Iggy Pop come out and do a sing I Want to Be Your Dog with you, which ha happened. So, you know, I, I lost sleep for a year after that. <laughs> and, then the, and then sort of like being in the top of this poll, which was really important to me, like because it was very hometown and it did speak to the rest of the world in a, in a really big way. Um, certainly being played on, 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 uh, on, on John Peel's radio station is huge. I mean, you know, that was like so cool, you know. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so there's, it, th these things are really, you know, so I make, so it was a really sort of critical marking point for us. Um, and it was shortly thereafter that we started talking to like corporate labels interested in, in, in uh, and putting our records out. 
which kind of was a, had its pros and cons, you know. It allowed us to stop working day jobs. You know, we were able to get health insurance, which as Americans was something that you could only get through, through working at companies, you know. Let's save the NHS, yeah. There's no, yeah, there's no, there's no socialized health care in, in the USA, and it doesn't look like there's going to be any anytime soon. So, but, so at that time, um, to be able to attain such a thing was really, was, you know, we were getting a little older, too, and so it's like the idea of, like, not having a day job and maybe being able to sort of uh, focus all of your attention on what you really want to do and be devotional to, which is being an artist and playing music and maybe someday having children and having families or being, you know, having a more serious domesticated situation. Um, this is the beginning of it, for sure. Thank you so much for joining us and discussing this album. We're just about to uh, put it on, put on John Peel's copy, but I just want everybody to please give your thanks to Thurston Moore. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That interview is recorded at a Classic Album Sundays event at the John Peel Center. And I would like to extend our thanks to the staff at the John Peel Center and John Peel Archive, and also to my special guest, Thurston Moore. If you enjoyed this, look out for our next Classic Album Sundays podcast, in which I'm joined by Kevin May and David McElroy, authors of the book Halo, the story behind Depeche Mode's classic album, Violator, to tell the story behind an album that made the UK band the world's most popular electronic act when the album was released in 1990. And if you would like to find out more about Classic Album Sundays, head on over to our website, where you can find info on how to join as a Patreon member to attend our virtual online events and meetups. I'm Colleen Cosmo Murphy, and now I encourage you to have a listen to Sonic Youth's Daydream Nation following our listening guidelines. Turn off your phone, refrain from conversation, turn down the lights, and definitely turn up the volume. And then listen to the album all the way through without interruption. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.